Candy-colored clown they call the Sandman. What? Creepy. Tiptoes to my room every night. Oh, Jesus Christ. Just to sprinkle stardust and to whisper. Are you sure that's all? Go to sleep. Everything is all right. No, I'm sorry. Everything here sounds like the exact opposite of all right. <laughs> Hi, I'm Hollywood Steve, here for Portal Block Interdimensional Home Security Systems. And I'm here to talk to you today about David Lynch and his disturbing dream world. I close my eyes and drift away into the magic night, and then a mutant moth frog crawls into my mouth. That's correct, J.D. Now, in my adult life, I've gotten to see a lot of things I never thought I'd live to see. Delightful things that no one thought practical or possible. Our first black president. Gay marriage legalized, marijuana likely on the way at some point. Scorsese and Morricone finally getting their Oscars. And Susan and Lucci finally getting her daytime Emmy. Hey, I act this for so long and everybody unlike me and they finally get to me the Susan and Lucci and it'll go to set you. It's a little man wearing a globe, a Susie Lucci. Brian Wilson, finishing Smile. Axel Rose, Hey, I'm a Brian Wilson. I've been in the bed being crazy. I finally have finished my Rick. Axel Rose, finished Chinese Democracy. Yep, sure did. Yep. yep. The Pixies reunited for a little while. Finland won the Eurovision Song Contest with a heavy metal band that dressed like Guar. A socialist won a presidential primary in my home state. An even more socialist socialist is poised to become Prime Minister of the UK. And, uh, of course, you know, the uh, Chicago Cubs won the World Series. You're? Just uh, just last year. Chicago You're? Cubs are World Series champions. You're a Cubs fan? Yeah. I never I knew. Why didn't no, you bring it up? Because I wanted to spring it on you as a surprise for this episode, Dave. I'm sure you can uh, imagine my surprise. Yeah, it's uh, a little-known thing about the Cubs is uh, I live to see them win the World Series. Huh. Uh, something none of my Illinois-born grandparents lived long enough to witness, unfortunately. And I bet they also never saw a two-minute shot slowly panning into a mushroom cloud, followed by five minutes of weird static patterns and off-putting electricity noises. This was our TV equivalent of Sammy Davis Jr. kissing Archie Bunker, and it happened two weeks ago. Oh, I thought you were talking about the end of that Michael Keaton movie, White Noise. Mm-mm. I gotta catch up on those, those episodes. And thank God that all that stuff has happened, okay, and, and, and that parade is continuing. And 2007, 2017 mostly sucks diarrhea, so we need, like, anything good happening right now. So about 25 years after the most infuriating cliffhanger in TV history, one where I'd long since given up on ever finding out what the hell happened next, Showtime decided to give David Lynch full creative control of a Twin Peaks revival. As we all know, Twin Peaks was essentially the birth of the modern prestige TV movement, almost a decade before The Sopranos changed the face of cable. Back in my day, they called it water cooler TV. Twin Peaks is also easily the strangest and most creative thing ever to air on network television, and as such, it is objectively the most important TV show of all time, not named The Simpsons. And now, we get to know the rest of the story. 
Can I just say right here at the bottom of yeah. the intro that I've been Go in pure it. heaven for the last couple months. Thank you, new Twin Peaks. Oh, God bless it. So today... Hey, tri- spoiler alert. You want to know how Annie is? Doesn't matter because Dale Cooper grew his hair super long, got tan, and is awesome now. I love it. So today, in tribute to David Lynch's vision, we're going to get into the aesthetic of his soundtracks, and we're going to try to come up with the best songs he should have used by now. Henceforth, these songs shall collectively be known by the moniker David Lynch Core. So I couldn't come up with anything better, I just went to core. Yeah. <laughs> Beyond Yacht Rock. Oh, this is the Beyond Yacht Rock podcast. We're a podcast that creates new musical genres and counts down the best songs in said genres from 10 to 1. My name is J.D. Riznar. My name's Hollywood Steve. I'm Dave Lyons. And I'm over here. Hunter. He's hunting. Hunting for a new introduction for himself. Yeah, he had a good one. Uh Uh-huh. Uh, we created the term Yacht Rock with our web show Yacht Rock, so we like to throw a bone to the Yacht Rock genre every week. And this week is no different because I've picked a Yacht Rock song to throw to, throw to the audience. Oh, yeah. man! What a coincidence. Also, Steve's a Cubs fan. Mm-hmm. They learn something new every day. Uh, so every time I listen to a Brenda Russell track from her two big Yacht Rock albums, I find a new gem. This is the title track of the album we've mentioned frequently, Two Eyes. Oh, that's my derogatory nickname for people who don't wear glasses. Or contact lenses. Never mind. Okay, so uh, this is the third track I featured from this album, including Jero, her tribute to Scat King Cole at the height of his powers, and her Michael McDonald collaboration, Hello People. I love Brenda Russell so much, she's one all I want for Christmas's you cover away from becoming my second wife. I will have two wives, which sounds like the name of this song, Two Wives. Does she have a say in this? I, I feel like you're just assuming you can take wives. I mean, I guess you gave her a way out if she doesn't record that shitty song. If Brenda Russell records All I Want for Christmas is You, I will find a way to make it work. <laughs> wow. I will join a Mormon cult in Idaho. I will make it work. <laughs> and assume, okay. I will bring these women with me. They won't, they, the, my Mormon overlords won't care in you know, this sect. <laughs> So, uh, I want to talk about how the song opens. Listen to this. Listen to, listen to this. Listen to that. It's like this guitar that sounds like a horn over a piano bounce. It's, it's the sound of like both like the crossfire and the hold the line. This is just beautiful, innovative yacht rock production in the genre's last days of relevance. It kind of does that Christopher Cross thing where you, you can't tell what instrument it is. I think it's Sith playing. Well, Brenda, Sith? Sith. The, the dark, the dark <laughs> tones. There, of the know, Sith. there can only be two Siths on any given track. Brenda <laughs> joined the dark side. And yeah. two eyes, uh, but also a piano. <laughs> and then some horns kick in because when I watched what what was the live video, there was a dude conducting some horns, and I saw Ooh. and I saw a synth. She, you can find her singing this song on YouTube. Yeah, it was like a top of the pops or something like that. Put that in my spank bank. Yeah, she is one attractive lady. I know. Okay, so this is a great example of a yacht ballad. You can hear how it it still moves while being slow and sentimental in the chorus, but it's completely undanceable in the verses. That's the beauty of yacht ballads. They're as awkward as our universal yacht rock protagonist, the foolish man. But with the heart of a romantic, the foolish man can get it together for an incredible slow dance. He knows a lady likes if he knows a lady likes him, then he slow bones her with his secretly giant dick. And she moans. Two, Two eyes. eyes. 
Uh, I did some research on this and then realized I wrote what you wrote just a little further down, so I'm going to skip that part. Cool. But uh, Bill Bounty and Michael McDonald are both on the album. <laughs> I couldn't tell if they were on the song, but they were listed as composers. Since I couldn't find the answer, I'm just going to insist that they are. Michael McDonald has nothing to do with this song. I disagree. But listen to this chord. When you have time on your own audience, listen to this chorus. It's the, it's the kind of pr- song that weaves prom memories, even though I guarantee you it's never been played at anyone's prom ever. And there's a key change at the first chorus. You never hear that shit. Key yeah. changes are reserved for the third act in a song. This is a fancy song. It's fancy. Yeah, but she does the key change like at every chorus. Yeah. This song is great. Yeah, yeah. This song. So I'm, I'm really excited. I know. This song is not afraid to try new things. It's stand out from the ballad wasteland of popular music. Um. Finally, I want just want to say it's fun to listen to this song as sung from the perspective of a woman being stalked by a cryptozoological creature like the Yeti or the Chupacabra or a werewolf. But this one is called Two Eyes. The chorus is never going to get away from two eyes that look like yours. Ah! It's like her boyfriend is a fool by day but then turns into a creepy monster with two eyes when the moon is a waxing crescent or something like that. You want to talk about Lynchcore? Let's talk about David Lynchcore. And let's start by listening to the title song of uh, one of the most acclaimed American films of the 1980s. Most of us know Blue Velvet from teen idol crooner Bobby Vinton's chart-topping 1963 version right here. The original was actually done in 1951. You mean Six Pack? The most acclaimed film of the 80s, Six yeah. Pack? That's a good one. Young Anthony yeah. Michael Hall. Yeah. Uh, that was the most acclaimed. Oh, I'm only Diane, talking about one Diane of Lane. the other ones. Okay. <laughs> Anyone else in that? None, none of those I can two? remember. Oh, okay. Sorry. I was punching myself for not being able to shout out a movie right when you said that. So, see, I went the opposite. Better late than and I never. waited a really long time. <laughs> Jokes! Okay, go ahead, Steve. All right. So, this history of the song Blue Velvet, like the. You gave its name to the movie, obviously. Um, original Blue Velvet was done in 1951 by Tony Bennett. There was an R&B version in 55 by vocal group The Clovers. There was a minor chart hit by doo-wop group The Statues in 1960. And most recently, it was covered by Lana Del Rey in 2012. Now, Bobby Vinton has a number of characteristics that make him perfect for a David Lynch soundtrack. Even if this isn't quite as on the nose as a shimmery Roy Orbison song that's literally about dreams... Uh, Bobby Vinton is a clean-cut, all-American young man with a natural sob in his voice and a chaste yet unquenchable yearning for any number of fictitious childhood sweethearts. Uh, he's also easily one of the best teen idol singers of his era, and he doesn't get enough credit for that. Steve, I think you, uh, I, th- I think you should read what you put in parentheses after you listed all those uh, different versions of the song, just to oh, give yeah. just I to gave, give people uh, I gave an idea of how long is all the. All the songs we're going to hear today are very short. A lot of them are around two and a half minutes. No, so don't preface it. Just to get just to get through all this all this definition. I told JD we might need to play a few of those other versions while I get through the rest of this genre definition. With all you wrote in this episode, you should should have given me four versions of every single song in the countdown. <laughs> Sixteen pages. We're going to be restarting a lot of these. Here's Tony Bennett's version. Uh, size eight. Our font. first forty song countdown. 
Um, so I think we should attempt to define the David Lynch aesthetic that makes the music so evocative, that makes this music so evocative of his work. David Lynch's big themes deal with a secret, dark underbelly lurking below a white bread version of America, the clean-cut ideal of the American dream. It's often based on the feel of the 1950s, which is the era where much of this music is from or inspired by. And you see it over and over again, Twin Peaks, Blue Velvet, Dune. Oh, nice space planet you got here. Look out for those worms underneath. Uh, Mulholland Drive, showing the darkness behind the dumpster of the Hollywood dream and Lost Highway, arguing that the life of an avant-garde saxophone player is not as peachy keen as you might imagine. <laughs> I disagree. <laughs> Peter Broatsman lives large, man. I, like my color I, I can tell. <laughs> But I should have written that in. Um, but when you think about the ideal David Lynch America, you think about the 1950s. Yeah, and he, he obviously doesn't use exclusively use 50s sounding ballads on all his soundtracks. Like, he did plenty of more modern stuff. But that's like the signature sound people associate with him and his work. Uh, most of the time, it, it's, it performs two functions. Uh, number one, a lot of his work comes out of this weird subconscious dream logic. And this music helps create that dreamy kind of vibe. Uh, sonically, Hunter, sonically, he tends to pick stuff with a, a shimmering quality to it, and that's often still true even when he's leaning more modern. Uh, number two, there's also often a simple innocence to these songs that gets subverted once he puts them in the context of this film. Uh, like J.D. was saying, the 50s, you know, it, the 50s plays such a large part in the American imagination, like the quintessential mythical version of what real America is supposed to be. We just American, beat the Nazis. Quote, yeah. And, uh, and Lynch likes to juxtapose that with, you know, the, the dark side of the human psyche. They were the evil ones. There's we're none the of that here in America. We no, we're, we're the, the good, good guys. guys. This is we're the Clover. still the good guys. The Clover's Blue Velvet. The Clover's right here. The so to, to sum it all up, the key to this genre is wholesome, innocent-sounding Americana from a bygone era that we're all nostalgic for that David Lynch could wildly pervert the meaning of by using it to score some super weird fucked up scene. Yeah, and you could also argue that there's a seediness written into the music because a lot of 50s tunes had deeply sexual intent, which could be very healthy, but when it's as repressed as it is in this music, it becomes very dark. Yeah, that's a good point. You'll be happy to know, J.D., that I've come up with a whole separate episode of music from this era that does a terrible, terrible job of repressing what it's trying to repress. JD, is this? Would you consider this oldie time music? Yeah, oldie time music. You'd no. be happy to hear. I'm <laughs> excited. Got another one coming. I know. I know. At I, least one. It's See, oldie think... time music that all sounds exactly the same. <laughs> Can't wait till I do my punk episode for you. Uh, okay. Uh, I also think there's a darkness to this that just isn't the this. There's there's like a lot of these songs feel like death and these minor keys mm -hmm. yeah. that they're in. There's yeah, just. Yeah, I, I, I kind of drew heavily on minor key stuff. Yeah. Because it sounds a, just a little bit more. I feel like it's the kind of stuff that would make David Lynch feel really sad. Mm. Like he would feel these really, really intensely. Also, anything pre-cultural revolution and rock and roll feel, feels really weird to me. It just, just in general. Yeah, it, it, it lacks a certain edge. So, the whole point of this challenge here today is to come up with songs David Lynch has not used yet. So in addition to what we've already heard here today, that's going to rule out 
Love Letters by Ketty Lester, which was also in Blue Velvet. Uh, even if we, were, even if I wanted to cover more modern stuff, which I didn't, uh, there'd be No Wicked Game by Chris Isaac, nothing by The Nine Inch Nails. <laughs> Uh, and on the new season of Twin Peaks, he's already used I Love How You Love Me by the Paris Sisters. Oh, I used that one in uh, Wes Bumblefuck, my uh, unaired tribute to David Lynch. To yeah, I've re- still never seen that. Yeah, it's good. It's got boobs in it. Ooh. Oh, nice. Uh, he's also used My Prayer by the Platters. And that's part of what made me want to do this episode next. Before he knocks out any of my other choices, I want to get these all on record so I can look like a genius if any of these guesses turn out to be right. Uh, and because it has to be Americana, there's no British invasion stuff allowed. The UK can expose its own seedy underbelly on its own time. And finally, finally here's Lana Del Rey's Blue Velvet. We made it through all the Blue Velvets. <laughs> and also, would. I want to point out that he said to sum up four paragraphs ago. I'm summing up the genre. Now I'm, I'm listing the exceptions. <laughs> I don't Got know if this it. is my least favorite favorite thing where, like, Dave makes fun of how long Steve's thing is and then Steve defends it. Steve like, ju- makes like, it longer. Ju- no, but justifiably, too. Like, Dave's criticisms are wrong. And I don't know. I, it's all very mind-bendy. And <laughs> no, I, I was right. I love it and I hate it. We're taking the audience into our own dream world yeah. right now. To sum up the middle, this is our therapy, <laughs> J.D. <laughs> so, last thing. I'm also now we are ruling, on the ending. I'm also <laughs> ruling out finally. songs that have been prominently featured in other well-known shows to an extremely Lynch-like effect, because that would be that'd be a cop-out. So that's gonna include Wonderful Wonderful by Johnny Mathis from the consensus creepiest episode of the that's X-Files. A, that is a great one. It's I don't a, believe oh, it's man. creepiest. There goes your consensus adjective. Continue. You're, you're wrong. You're wrong. Uh, never seen it. Frankie I'm Avalon's Ve- Frankie Avalon's Venus, which was one of my mom's suggestions for this genre. Oh, uh, apparently that was heavily featured in the fourth season of Dexter, so I assume it's very creepy. I haven't seen it. Uh, and the Flamingo's super dreamy doo-wop classic, I Only Have Eyes for You, which has been in a bunch of stuff, but most appropriately, it was in a ghost story episode from season two of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. So, fingers crossed I haven't missed any really iconic appearances by the songs I did pick today. Hey, Steve, way to cash in in the current uh, cultural buzz. Hey, if anybody's going to capture the zeitgeist, it's going to be me. Hollywood Steve. And, hey, if anybody's not watched the new Twin Peaks out there, stop the podcast and watch the first nine episodes now. That's how many have aired at the time of this recording. Does that include me? Spoiler alert, Dave. Because <laughs> I'm on four. Well, it's because you hate good TV. So I didn't I didn't write this, but I, I, I like where you're going with this, and I think that other directors we could probably do this for would be definitely Martin Scorsese and probably Quentin Tarantino. Yeah. Is there anybody else that we could probably do that for? I've worked with a lot of directors that would uh, like to uh, okay. That's not okay. the question I asked. Here comes a countdown. <laughs> Here comes a countdown. <laughs> Why we from the first thing the fresh sun? Fucking assholes. And there's the worst music in here. And I'm there. All right, we're gonna kick things off here with Young Love. This is a number one hit from 1956 by country crossover singer Sonny James. Or, as I think we should nickname him immediately, Sonny Jim. Oh, shit! Boom! I just blew your fucking mind on song number 10. 
Um, you did. Compared to the other songs on this list, Young Love, is a li- it's a little sparsely arranged. It's a little more countrified. But the guy's name is almost literally Sonny Jim. Okay, a little context for anybody who's not watching the show. Mild spoilers here. Big time spoilers. See, in the new Twin Peaks, the evil Cooper doppelganger who came out of the Black Lodge in season two, supposedly to be sucked back into the... was supposed to be uh, sucked into the Black Lodge after 25 years when good Cooper is finally sent out. But evil Cooper tricked the Black Lodge by manufacturing another Cooper doppelganger, an insurance salesman in Las Vegas named Dougie Jones. So the Black Lodge sucked in Dougie Jones and good Cooper assumed the life of Dougie Jones, albeit with the mind of a man who's been comatose in a satanic dream world for 25 years and has been wandering around for six episodes as we wait for the Cooper we love to snap out of it. Anyway. Yeah. God, I can't wait for that to happen. D- Dougie yeah. has a wife named Janie E. and a son named Sonny Jim. And they both think goofball confused Cooper is their Dougie. And that uh, gets you up to speed on the on the on the Sonny Jim. Sonny Jim. Steve Agee called Dougie the Jar Jar Binks of Twin Peaks. <laughs> I like Dougie. And I'll tell you why. So he's awesome. I have no problem with Dougie. I like Dougie. I just don't like everybody around Dougie who yeah. won't take him to the fucking hospital. They're good. They're taking them now. They're taking them now. Okay, I haven't watched the last one because oh. I haven't been excited because so much Dougie. They explain it. They kind of explain it. Okay. Yeah, kind of ex- he had it's a car- not out of character he had a, for Dougie. He had a car accident 12 years ago and he has spells like this. Okay, alright, yeah. so at least they're exp- starting to explain it. Okay, I haven't gotten to that episode because I, I like Dougie because I think it's an exercise in identity. As Cooper sucks up something here, something there, little little bits of himself. Anyway, I, we, we shouldn't talk too much because Steve has written so much, so <laughs> we'll just listen to Steve read paragraphs. Yeah, a, lot of, a lot of information. Uh, so Sonny Jim was born James Hugh Loden in Hackleburg, Alabama. He was known as the Southern Gentleman because of his gentlemanly manner and also his being from the South. Oh. Mm. Yep. He started playing the mandolin at three years old and was then nicknamed Sonny Boy. So you see, Sonny Jim really is pretty much his name. So Young Love, this was one of the first country singles to co- cross over to the pop charts. Sonny Jim never again hit the top ten there, but after the, the early rock and roll era hits dried up, he wound up with this long string of big hits on the country charts from 64 to 71, including a remarkable 16 consecutive number ones. Good job. Several of those were covers of R&B classics. I'm, I gotta be honest, I'm surprised there was more than one chart back then. Oh, you're gonna learn a lot about the charts back then today. Okay. Yeah, country uh, and western. Yep. You get both kinds of charts. Uh, Sonny Jim had a total of 23 number one singles on the country charts. His last top 20 country hit came in 1981. That is a firecracker of a career, fellas. You don't really hear that much about it these days. You don't hear people describing things as being a firecracker much these days. Nope. I wish they would. You sure don't, Dave. It's a good one. Uh, Young Love was also covered by teen idol Tab Hunter. Oh, he's dreamy. He sure is. He's as dreamy as this song is. Uh, His version entered the charts just two weeks after Sonny Jim's, and it also hit number one. Uh, There was another charting version right around the same time by The Crew Cuts, a Canadian vocal group that specialized in whitening up rock and doo-wop songs. They were Canadian? Yep, they were Canadian. (laughs) Oh, my God. Uh, Donnie Osmond covered this song in 73, hit number one in the UK with it. Sonny Jim also produced Marie Osmond's first three albums, including her breakthrough hit Paper Roses. Hmm. I only really knew Sonny Jim through this one song. I learned a ton about Sonny Jim in researching this segment. Now, I do want to, I want to do one other thing with these, with these songs. Okay. I want, to, I want to try and figure out what kind of a David Lynch scene these could maybe belong to. 
This one, I feel like it's more suitable. You can like it's a little bit dreamy in the background harmonies, but it's more suitable as a prelude to something horrific happening a couple scenes after this. Like it's kind of lulling you into a false sense of security. Um, I think this is a, it's an innocent song about young love. It's this guy saying, "I found the love of my life already." It sounds great, but it's not true. And I think that this is the kind of naivete that could really be subverted in a Lynch scene. Like, say, Amanda Seyfried, who plays Shelley the Waitress's daughter, taking drugs with her junkie husband in, the, in his 50s classic car before uh, being on a trip, a drug trip of pure ecstasy. This would have been a great needle drop for that scene. Yes, agreed. I guess what I'm doing is finding scenes that already exist that these songs would have happened. I don't know. It's no big deal. Good work. Fellas, don't drink that coffee. You'd never guess. There was a fish in the percolator. Number nine. Fellas, fellas, don't listen to that podcast. You'll never guess. There was a Hollywood Steve at the keyboard. It's going to be a lot, a lot of facts today. It's weird because we talk yeah. instead of type. You're going to hear By the way, I'm, I'm glad you wore your Twin Peaks shirt today. I had to. Um, I wanted to tell everybody at home that because they can't see it. I had to create the proper atmosphere here. So this is Letterman, When I Fall in Love. The Lettermen were a staple around the Huey household when I was a kid. My mom loved them, uh, so much so I was very surprised later in life to find out that most people knew Theme from a Summer Place as an instrumental. I like I like the Letterman's mellowed out rock covers. They did a lot of those. That yeah, was... they did a lot of those. Yeah. They're, they're mostly a repertory act. Like, most of the songs they recorded are better known or more associated with other artists. I feel like this was this is their signature song. It's the one most associated with them, uh, but it too is a cover. I like when they were on CBS before they moved to the early slot on. Yeah, or on Total NBC before they moved to the, oh, yeah. the early slot on CBS. Yeah, David Letterman, Paul Schaefer, Letterman, the Letterman. Yeah. Uh, so the first, the first. <laughs> version of this song was recorded by Doris Day in 1952. I see what you did there. Uh, prior to David Letterman's version, it was also recorded by Nat King Cole, Johnny Mathis, and actress Sandra D, a.k.a. Mrs. Bobby Darren. This was one of their two top ten pop hits, and their only song to hit number one on the adult contemporary chart, which is interesting. That they were, I think they may have been using that term back in 62, or it might have been known as the easy listening chart back then. I'm not 100% sure. Do your research! I tell the guy. <laughs> he had other stuff to write. go back and add a few nah, more I'm, paragraphs. I'm sure if he wrote a fact about him, it's in here. Okay. <laughs> So, as, as dreams go, this is a very soothing dream. It's like a gentle breeze whispering through the trees. Like, this is the kind of song that would be playing for a good-sized audience at the town nightclub or the roadhouse while the characters try to have a fun or romantic night out. Or James Hurley is singing it in a girl voice to Donna Hayward and Maddie Ferguson. <laughs> Maybe Harold Smith has it on the record player when Laura Palmer uh, comes over to confess her sexual adventures to him. Uh, and all, all I like about this song... It's got that, that guitar strum that goes, dring, yeah. dring, at very Lynch core. The other thing that makes this particularly Lynchian to me is that even though it's supposed to be this hopeful longing song, uh, like we talked about at the beginning, it goes into this dark minor chord and feels like there's more here. Like Beach Boy type harmonies over this dark piano music. Who, uh, 
Who are these guys, Steve? Well, it's a good segue, Dave. It almost, <laughs> it almost doesn't matter who the Lettermen are, because their clean-cut white guy harmonies are supposed to meld into a seamless whole, while each member subverts any individual identity to that of the team. This is approximately the same concept that drives the clubhouse culture of the St. Louis Cardinals, which they like to pretend is the best way to play baseball, because this way no one can have any fun. Anyway, I digress. The Letterman's real names are Jim Pike, Bob Engeman, and Tony Butala, all of whom sound like rejected Mad Men characters. They also sound like the three, four, and five slots of the St. Louis Cardinals lineup. Yeah, they're, 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 they're the kind of uh, scrappy white guys who don't have a lot of athletic talent, but the crowd really loves it. <laughs> Bless you. Sorry. Sorry, I'm allergic to baseball talk. Way to, way to mix it up, Hunter. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. Uh, when they started out, the Letterman actually did wear those letter sweaters that we associate with old-timey preppies because they needed a gimmick to make themselves stand out from all the other clean-cut preppy, too-white-to-be-doo-wop vocal groups on the music scene in the early 60s. And like the four preps or the four freshmen. Yeah, exactly. And the, the Letterman really stood out by being a trio instead of four guys. Or the varsity rapists. <laughs> no, that's more recent. Oh, okay. <laughs> actually, I'll bet that was going on then, too. Of course, yeah. even more so. I lettered no right. would. Nobody would talk about it then. It Nobody, was easier to sweep Not if they knew what was good for him. Uh, so, the Bob Engeman was later replaced by Jim Pike's brother, Gary Pike. And then Jim Pike was replaced by their other brother, Donnie Pike. Oh! And all the, all the Pikes, every Pike remaining left in the early 80s. But Tony Butala kept on going, still leads a version of this group to this day. I got one more fact about the Letterman. They were inducted into the Vocal Group Hall of Fame in 2001, three years after it was founded by, that's right, Tony Butala. Uh, the Vocal Group Hall of Fame is a theater and a museum in Sharon, Pennsylvania, which also happens to be the town where Tony Butala was born. So, so Butala started the Hall of Fame he knew he could get into. Yes, that is correct. But he's, he's never heard of the Pussy-Ass White Guy Hall of Fame? Because he could have just gotten into that one. Where's that one? In Muskegon, Michigan. Um, this is another song that's naive to the America's darkness. When I fall in love, it'll be forever. When I give my heart, it'll be completely. Hey, hey, tell that to all the girlfriends leading up to my wife. Am I right, guys? Yeah. Back back then, you had to get married before you could have sex, so everybody got married really young. Not if you were on the varsity. <laughs> Oh my god. That's why you needed to be a letterman. What are we doing? What kind of beer do you like? I like Heineken. Heineken? Fuck that shit! Pops Blue Ribbon! Number eight. <laughs> it's the same song! <laughs> no, it isn't! Listen to that guy, Sob! Oh my god. This guy can out sob anyone. He can win a sob off with Bobby Vinton and George Michael. This is Gene Pitney with Only Love Can Break a Heart. It's the only Burt Bacharach song I managed to fit into this list. Dave, didn't you used to have a sob? Yeah, I did. It was uh, the 900 convertible. convertible. Love that car. <laughs> yeah, it was a great car. Uh, yeah. Hunter, Hunter, I didn't have time to, to prepare for this one. I like unprepared Hunter. Yeah, I do too. Yeah. Tossing off some gems here, Hunter. Yeah. Trying. I'm digging that little uh, whistle over the uh, over the sad music and lyrics. Chirpy. Yeah. That's what I'm noticing here, the juxtaposition of happy and heartbreaking. Yeah, I think that's what really makes David Lynch feel feelings. Uh, this song was Gene Pitney's biggest hit. It peaked at number two. 
It was held out of the top spot by The Crystal's He's a Rebel, which was produced by Phil Spector and written by Gene Pitney. You played yourself, homie. (laughs) First time Gene Pitney's ever been called homie. Congratulations, Mm -hmm. Steve. I did it. Really breaking records left and right. Breaking hearts, too. Uh, another weird thing about this song, it was also covered by Sonny James in 1972. Weird! And it peaked at number two there, too. What? And that was the song that broke Sonny Jim's afore- aforementioned string of 16 straight number ones. Whoa. And also, speaking of Bobby Vinton, he recorded it in 1977. It's kind of mm. tailor-made for him. Yeah. Wait, we were speaking about Bobby Vinton? Yeah. Huh. It was about half an hour ago. Oh. Um, I feel like I'm in the Black Lodge, and not because uh, everything is like a crazy supernatural coincidence, because I feel like I'm in here, I've been in here for 25 years. <laughs> that means bad JD is somewhere out in the world right now, ruining Ponytail. your life. To ask Lita to tell you about Ponytail JD sometimes. I remember Ponytail JD. <laughs> Ponytail JD and I went to an art opening in Turtlenecks with, uh, with your fucking... Uh, Chihuahua. <laughs> ponytail J had just got a little success in Hollywood, was feeling a little cocky, and had a ponytail. Gene <laughs> uh, uh, Pitney recorded several other Bird Bacharach songs. That was most of his biggest hits in America. Uh, he wound up more popular in Britain, where his career as a productive hitmaker lasted almost a decade longer than his homeland. He also died in Britain of a heart attack in Cardiff, Wales, on a 2006 tour. Uh, fortunately, he'd been inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame four years earlier. Did he make it into the Vocal Hall of Fame? No, he wasn't the vocal group. Mm, well, uh, now whenever a Lynch Corps song even hints at a negative emotion, David Lynch will usually do something unspeakably horrible on screen while it plays. But this one, I have a hard time picturing that way. Maybe it's the chirpy whistling we were talking about. But uh, could be. This this sounds more like a song that would play on the jukebox while the characters have a real unsupernatural romantic conflict of some sort. I, this would have been a nice song to play during an Agent Cooper and Annie Blackbird romance scene. Uh, careful, Coop. Love will break your heart. It's the only way. That's what the song says. But then Lynch subverts that by having Cooper's heart broken when his nemesis, Wyndham Earl, kidnaps Annie into a supernatural hell realm and Cooper gets stuck inside for 25 years. A little more complicated than only love, but he did get his heart broken. Yep. And love was involved. I'd love very, to see very this. Very abruptly uh, built love. But not only love. Gene Pitney saying only love. Also supernatural interference with your longtime nemesis, whose wife you were having an affair with, and then she got Supernatural interference can break a heart. I see a scene where um, we meet uh, Agent Cooper's mom, and it's played by Alice Cooper in drag, and she's on stage singing this song. Yep, yep, I can see that. Good job, I want to see that now. Dave, you're directing season four of Twin Peaks. Congratulations. Hey, thanks. My name is Joe Showtime, and I'm giving you that job. Thank you, Mr. Showtime. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. You know, this is, excuse me, a damn fine cup of coffee. Number seven. He sounds like a baby. Mm-hmm. He was a baby. Yeah. Ah. We're getting super dreamy now, sonically speaking. You know, listen to this. Hunter, I heard him. I, 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 I caught it. I, I, I caught it. I, I'm trying not to interrupt anymore. I like interrupting. Interrupting Hunter. He's great. He's like the punchline of a knock-knock joke. But, wait, hold on. See? See? 
Hunter, listen, listen to how this song shimmers and sighs and swoons, sonically speaking. This, is a, this song's a musical equivalent of James Hurley, and a tough motorcycle boy with a heart of gold. Laura Palmer's secret boyfriend, who we learned in season three, has always been cool. Always been cool. Even after the accident. Uh-huh. So this is Shelley Fabre with uh, Johnny Angel. Uh, Shelley Fabre was one of the few female teen idols of her era. Uh, like Ricky Nelson, she spun off a role on a TV sitcom. Uh, she was the daughter on the Donna Reed show. Into a music career. Hers wasn't nearly as extensive as Ricky's, though, because it wasn't her young love, first love music. Uh, she did record a few albums over a period of several years and then kind of gave it up. Uh, this was her only big hit. She did have one follow-up sequel song song called Johnny Loves Me that just missed the top 20. Oh, love a good song sequel. You should do a sequel to your song sequel episode. No! <laughs> uh, this song makes me realize that I don't understand dating in the 50s. I also don't understand dating in any of the decades I've been alive. You're not but 50 yet. In particular, <laughs> I'm not. Maybe you're, you're, only, then you're, only, you're only in your early 40s. Of course you don't understand yeah, dating in your 50s. You will be. In the 50s. Maybe by then I'll, I'll like get the hang of it. I don't know. We'll see. Uh, but I feel like Shelley Fabre in this song is turning down way more dates than than most modern-day lovelorn girls with unrequited crushes. At least that's the impression I get from, from following people on social media who complain about their love lives. I don't know. Maybe there's a girl out there that's turning down guy after guy just focusing on you, waiting for you to come around. Boy, that's a terrible strategy. Yeah. Uh... It's hard for me to say what kind of scene this song would, would be the score of. It could be like a high school crush that's super innocent, like go totally on the nose with it, or you could have a biker visiting a brothel. I don't know. Uh, there's one slightly creepy note when she sings, Together we will see how lovely heaven will be. Like, are they making a suicide pact or something? I don't think it's a suicide pact. I think it's uh, very one-sided. Okay. So I think it's like a murder-suicide pact with oneself. Oh, okay. So okay. So it's a plan that's taking shape unbeknownst to the other party. Yeah, it's like I'll when, buy that. when Danzig says, if you want to find hell with me, I'll show you what it's like. Oh. You found the exact spiritual opposite of this song. Yeah. Good job. Thank you. I, I mean, Danzig always had a, have a had a soft spot for the 50s, music from the 50s. Yeah. I don't, I don't think it's quite as opposite as you believe, Steve. Sonically. Sonic. Son, woo. Spiritually. Uh, so after after the teen idol phase of Shelley's career, she left the Donna Reed show to start a film career, and unfortunately, her biggest success there is getting to appear in, count them, three Elvis Presley movies, Girl Happy, One, Spin Out, two, and Clam Bake. Three. That's three. Uh, yeah. Yep. I got, he, told, he said count them. I did, and you did, and I thank you for that. You're welcome. Uh, it's good to fact check me. I have the soundtracks to two of those movies, and they are fucking awful, but there was a period where I got mildly obsessed with trying to recreate the famous bootleg compilation Elvis's Greatest Shit, so I bought them a bunch of them on CD. Anyway, no other actress sank to the level of appearing in as many as three Elvis movies. And excuse me for this sexist comment, but Shelly... You're excused. Go ahead. Shelly Fabre had some Audrey Horn caliber sweater meat. Hachi Machi. Yeah, I was seriously... her. 
uh, her persona on the Donna Reed show and is a pop musician is a great model for Donna and Audrey and Laura and all the girls of Twin Peaks original run and I'd be surprised if young Shelly didn't give little Sonny David a boner every now and then I got a movie recommendation for you. It's a Charlie Sheen picture called The Wraith, uh-huh. where Charlie Sheen plays his murdered former self that uh-huh. comes down in Whatever, a supercar. Doesn't matter. What is Shelly Fabry's tits in it? Uh, yeah. No. Yeah, Coach Number. <laughs> so anyway, after that film run with Elvis, Shelly took that as a sign to go back to television. She uh, worked as a guest star during the 70s. She became a semi-regular on One Day at a Time. Uh, then in 89, she got the role that most folks of our generation would know her from, Coach's Girlfriend on Coach. Dumber! Guys, there were nine seasons and 200 episodes of Coach. Yep. That's like that's like that excessive number of Jackal hits compilations. <laughs> Maybe if Deputy Andy was more like Dauber... Twin Peaks would have had more episodes. Hilarious character, Dauber. I'm the big dumb guy. Coach. Yeah, like like co- like Coach from Cheers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, He's more like Woody, but Woody was yeah. taking over for right. Coach. Was... You guys remember Jimmy Angel? No, no. He's the '50s hep bobcat that played at the smokehouse the night that I got. Uh, Oh, that's right, dude. You got market priced on laughter. Yeah. <laughs> like a dumbass. Laughter tail. Like, it's like a dollar. dumbass. It's yeah. Like a Dave for a chewy fucking sliver of. For a chewy it's, fucking trip tail. Was it like $80? Yeah. I think it was market. 90 oh, It's amazing to watch Dave order in restaurants because when he's faced with a decision that he hasn't made yet, like if, 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 if he has to make a snap decision, he'll just go with the most extravagant thing he sees. Oh, well, no, no. It's just what sounds best to me. It's usually the most extravagant thing well, on the menu. Well, this, this said market You even price. do it at the car wash. Are you, like, oh, shit, I gotta, I gotta figure out which, which wash. Uh, just give me the, like, the executive package or whatever. I did that today and you had no way of knowing that. Because <laughs> I've seen you do it at another time. Dave is every menu's CD underbelly. Is it future or is it past? Where was it you think we met? At your house, don't you remember? No, no, I don't. Are you sure? Of course. As a matter of fact, I'm there right now. Number six. That's fucking crazy, man. I love that scene. Lost Highway, ladies and gentlemen. I haven't seen that yet. What a show. Yeah, it's a good one. Is that the one? That's Nick Cage, right? Where no, that's no. Wild at Heart. Oh, uh, okay. Lost Highway's Bill, Bill Pullman? Pullman as an avant-garde saxophone so, yeah, player. Yeah, that's right. And boy, oh boy, are his sax scenes good. I can't believe I've never yeah. seen that. That was, uh, that was a real loss when he passed away earlier this year. Yeah, I know. R.I.P. Him and Joe Walsh hanging out together. <laughs> In a restaurant in Encino, probably. Okay, Steve, sorry. Go hey, it's number six. It's the Walker Brothers with The Sun Ain't Gonna Shine Anymore. Uh, this song is the latest one on the countdown. It's from 66. Uh, it just barely scrapes by as Americana because it was a by it was it was very popular in Britain, but it was by a group of American expatriates who found themselves way more popular in the UK than their home country. And anytime you read about the Walker Brothers, you'll hear that in 1966, which was their only big year on the charts in Britain, their fan club had more members than the Beatles. I, I can verify that anytime I have read about the Walker Brothers, that exact <laughs> fact came up. Yeah, same here. Yeah, me too. We're I'm glad one, you guys have been reading one. up about the Walker Brothers. They're a very interesting... Well, it was a while ago. Yeah. I'm just... 
Um, I've, th- I've only read this paragraph Steve wrote about the Walker Brothers, so that's why every time. Anyway, mm-hmm. I'm one for one. So this is a pretty audaciously produced song. He's got a big wall of sound sound back there. Was this produced by Phil Spector or was it influenced by him? This is this sounds weird. Are That's we a missing like question, a channel JD. on the stereo? It was actually produced by uh, two British guys imitating Spectre, oh. Johnny France and Ivor Raymond. Probably Ivor. Both I don't of whom also worked for Dusty Springfield. That's a good fact, Dave. Thank you, Stephen. Yeah, I don't know what's wrong with this side. This is just the song as it is on Spotify. Okay. Uh, anyway. It's just, I, I heard, like, wall of sound. Like, where's the wall of sound? Oh, I think we anyway. finally figured out how to get into Steve's head. Mm-hmm. Where's the wall of sound? Uh, so in addition to not being British, none of the Walker brothers were were brothers, and none of them were born with the name Walker. Say what? John Moss, Mouse, M-A-U-S, uh, adopted the name Walker when he first started performing around L.A. as a teenager. His bandmates Scott Engel and Gary Leeds followed suit when they joined up. Uh, Gary was the drummer in the Standells before they hit it big with Dirty Water. Ah, that backdoor suggestion. Mm-hmm. Yep. And yeah. uh, please know that this Scott Walker is not the asshole governor of Wisconsin. There's a lot of confusion with about that. With the Standells, that. I keep on dancing? No, that was uh, the Gentries. The Gentries, featuring uh, the mouth of the South, Jimmy Hart. Yes, got it. Uh, so this song was written first for Frankie Valley in the Four Seasons by their usual writers Bob Crew and Bob Gaudio, uh, who are better known as evil spirits from the Black Lodge because they're both named Bob. Uh, this was released as a single, didn't chart. Uh, the Walker Brothers version peaked at lucky number thirteen in America. It hit number one in Britain. It's also been covered by The Letterman, Jay and the Americans, Neil Diamond, and a Yacht Rock connection here, Nielsen Pearson, which was their final charting single in 1981. The Nielsen Pearson version is not a Yacht Rock song, I listened to it, but it is cool because it has an updated 80s version of this Wall of Sound ripoff production. It, is, it also brings in this sweet, wailing, Lucatherian electric guitar. Don't know who plays it, but it's sweet. David Essex uh, took a swing and missed at this one, I think, in the late 70s as well. Oh, yeah. In uh, in 96, Cher did a cover that was used in an episode of The X-Files, so I think my instincts with this one are right on. Uh, This is definitely the kind of song you would hear upon entering the Black Lodge for the next quarter century if Bob was the guy singing instead of the Under the Sycamore Tree guy. Terrence, Terrence Trent Darby? Yeah, that one. Really? He's in it? Yeah, underneath the sycamore tree. Yeah. Cupid by the hour sends Valentine. Yeah, sure. No, that's my, my favorite answer to every trivia question. Yeah, it is. It's a bit you've been doing for years. Huh. <laughs> I, I can see this song being listened to by someone at Wild at Heart, like Nick Cage's Elvis impersonation character, or Bobby Peru by Willem Dafoe. Now, these songs have a definite longing. It's going right along with your theory of real suffering behind a saccharine facade. Yeah, because nobody knew how to express their emotions yet through rock music, except for, like, well, no white people knew how to do that yet. Um, So Scott Walker... None of them. them. Maybe Elvis. None of the other ones. None of them. Zero percent. 
so Scott Walker is a really interesting guy. Speaking of Scott Walker, the not interesting Scott Walker, have you ever read his tweets from like a few years ago, just before he ran for president, where every Sunday he'd talk about how he's bringing home hot ham and rolls? Yes. Yeah, he has <laughs> this whole ham the thing. Best. Every, great. Every, I didn't realize that was him. Yeah. Every Sunday, Governor Scott Walker picks up hot ham and rolls, and he tweets about it. Yeah, and sometimes like another good Sunday, hot ham and rolls yeah, uh, every, with the fam. Every once in a while, there wouldn't be rolls on there, and it was often enough to make you go, "What? What, what happened to the rolls? Uh, you and your wife on uh, is everything Atkins okay or something? Yeah. yeah, cutting cutting down the carbs. <laughs> Where's the rolls, Scotty? Okay. Anyway, that was a that was the best fun fact of the day. Check uh, out, I didn't. I'm, I'm going to tie Twitter. it in. I mean, yeah. I mean, I didn't realize that, that was full circle. Was uh, so Scott Walker, this this group, this he became something of a teen idol in Britain, and he decided to go solo, and then he turned into something like Rock's answer to David Lynch. His uh, his first four solo albums were this weird mix of Jacques Brel covers that were translated by the notoriously florid poet Rod McEwen. And some surprisingly dark originals where he crooned these weird impressionistic lyrics over really bombastic orchestras. Uh, over the years, his musical interests got more and more avant-garde, and he, after a few sporadic appearances here and there, he finally returned in the 90s as a quasi-classical modern composer, and he's done three albums in, in that vein to date. They're like nothing else you've ever heard. Uh, I, I stole a quote from Guardian writer... Simon Hattonstone, who described him as Andy Williams reinventing himself as Stockhausen. There's oh, a, there's I'm a... Hattonstone. I'm dropping Stockhausen. Hattonstone loves Stockhausen references. That's me, Hattonstone. And I'll tie in the hot ham thing. If there's a, if you <laughs> yes. watch, if you watch we're the, we're waiting. Uh, we're waiting. If you I forgot watched, about uh, it. Yeah. If you watch the uh, documentary, there's a Scott Walker documentary called 30th Century Man" after one of his songs, and they show him recording his newest album at the time, and he's he's one of one of the tracks. He makes all the percussion noises huh? by slapping a side of pork. Ah. Or is it hot ham? After he slaps it so much, yeah. it probably hits it, up it a little bit. It probably is. Yeah. At this point, I think it's a callback, not a tie-in. I brought it full circle, and I tied the two Scott Walkers together. Some good song right there. Why? Well, like we don't guy, know what it is yet. I, I, I don't know who it is either, but I'll tell you, this guy gives good song. Yeah. Well, so here, I want to issue an apology and a correction, not in that order. Two weeks ago, I uh, mentioned Jeff Healy. Uh, I can't remember how I got there, but I know you guys were all befuddled, and it's probably because I mentioned he played at the Double Down. He didn't. He played at the Double Deuce, a That's... tough little bar known for having a sexy-ass bouncer and for allowing you to take exactly two shits per visit. <laughs> yeah. No more, no less. Yeah, the Double Down's my favorite Vegas bar, and actually there's one in New York where J.D. and I once shared bacon martinis. 
with a very unpleasant bartender. Uh huh. And then we had a yacht. We had four. Four bacon four, martinis. No, four Bloody Marys each, and then we stumbled to the Yacht Rock show, and we were drunk, and Ambrosia opened for it. Anyway, okay. Yeah, they drank all our beer, which was good, because we didn't need any more. So, really dumb facts. Go ahead. So as soon as I said double down, I immediately thought, fuck, I think I met double deuce. So I went home to verify, and sure enough, I made a mistake, and I apologize, and thank you all for not contacting me to correct the error. <laughs> uh, uh, so as a peace offering, I am I am playing not Jeff Healy because he's Canadian, but Patrick Swayze's second 50 soundtrack song. Uh, but it's number one in my heart. It's the amazing Raising Heaven in Hell Tonight from the Oscar-winning uh, Southern Gothic classic Roadhouse. Huh. I think I, if I remember my research correctly, for the first time Swayze was in this segment, his entire recorded legacy was only six songs, all for soundtrack. So we're we're a third of the way there. <laughs> we'll get there. Yeah, we, yeah, we will. Uh, yeah, uh, raising heaven brings the ice cold fire of James Dalton, the professional cooler who leaves his highfalutin Manhattan club to go to Jasper, Missouri, to teach the local hillbillies how to drink without getting in, into a fight. Oh, God's work there. And he does that by gracefully karate kicking the shit out of him. Oh. The noose. Somebody has to. Uh, of course he runs into Ben Gazzara, who I assume has also left Manhattan, because he's clearly a New Yorker. <laughs> and he now rules this country town with an iron fist. He does this by stopping booze shipments, running over cars with, with Bigfoot, and yeah. employing badass ex-cons who love backdoor suggestions. And speaking of Dave genres, this little song has a bit of what I think is Africadabra. I'm not certain where Oweyoweyo comes from, but I believe it's Africa, mm-hmm. and I think we might have a sequel potential here where uh, this and, and a song like The Rhythm Is Gonna Get You" by the uh, Miami Sound Mekine, and a bit, maybe Life in a Northern Town by Dream Academy with the Oweyoweyos. Um, I bet there's more. Dave, get on that. And speaking right. of sequels, did you know Roadhouse had, had one and it stars Jake Busey? Yep, neither did I. I. Nope, I did not know that. Is it Uh, called Roadhouse 2? It is. I'll look for it. Uh, So to wrap this up, I'd like to mention a few more things. Uh, uh, I can't say for sure, but I think this is one of those movies that employed a lot of stunt men and women in speaking roles, which is great. I'm pretty sure it did. Uh, I miss those. It adds to the grit and pace of a film because you got to get through those talking parts and get right to the action. Uh, it also employed Dave, uh, Keith, Keith David, not to be confused with David Keith, obviously. Yeah. Uh, it employed Sam Elliott's mustache. And it also employed Kelly Lynch, who, fun fact here, I used to think was David Lynch's daughter. Because I knew he had a daughter in the movie industry, mm-hmm. uh, but she was the director of Boxing Helena. Yeah, it was Jennifer Lynch. Uh, she wasn't Kelly Lynch. No. Uh, but... Fun fact about Kelly Lynch, uh, her and Swayze have a love scene in this movie, and it's uh, been reported that Bill Murray likes to call her husband every time it's on TV to let him know that scene's on. Yep. <laughs> yep. Uh, so, uh, the, I, her husband, I, I believe, directed uh, Scrooge. That's what I'm okay. so glad Bill Murray lived to see the Cubs win the World Series because he deserved oh, Jesus, it. I thought we'd get through this segment no. without mentioning the Cubs. Nope. No. Uh, so in conclusion, uh, this is arguably the greatest movie ever made, and mm-hmm. it's on TV right now. Somebody call Kelly Lynch's husband. Welcome to Plug Hole, where, where we plug things. Thanks to Ocean City Defender for writing this bed. Yeah. This music bed. Um, 
Hey, today's bumpers weren't they great? These are, hey, who did these bumpers? They're great. Joe Susudio Wise Caver. Oh. At Backpedal Music. He heard that you were doing a Lynch episode, Steve, and he emailed us and was like, can I do some bumpers? And I said, yes, please. And Fantastic. boy, did he ever pull through. Fantastic. Every single one of these bumpers has something to do with David Lynch. He did not break his promise one bit. Man. He's a man of his word, that Joe Susudio Wise Caver. He earned the nickname. Hey, he did not backpedal. What's going on later this month, July 2017? Dave, what's going on? I'm glad you asked. Our friend, uh, good friend of the podcast, uh, DJ Claire, is hosting her ninth annual Yacht Rock Party at the Whistle Stop Bar in San Diego. It's a cool spot in the South Park neighborhood, and it's coinciding with Comic-Con. And you should go there and tell her that Brandy isn't Yacht Rock, no matter how great of a song it is. She'll She's probably, heard it from us before. She'll probably play it anyway. It's what the crowd wants. It is what the crowd wants. Uh, but that was demonstrated uh, quite uh, forcefully by the crowd that night. Indeed it was. She'll be spinning Yachty vinyl all night starting at 4 p.m. And who knows, if some of us can get our shit together, maybe some of us will be there. It's not really all night either. It's like 4 to 8. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, like, it's like a happy it's hour. It's a happy thing. hour, and it's, it's really yeah. a lot of fun. We went there. It's where we did our Loggins live show last year. It was, it was a good time. Yeah, hey, all you fellas, I saw lots of ladies, mm-hmm. single-looking single ladies in captain's hats. And mustaches. And mustaches. Really dancing hard, looking yeah. for a fella to dance with. And, of course, in the Yacht Rock world, all men are fools. Stop being fools. Go dance with these ladies at DJ Claire's thing, yeah. boys. Uh, that's gonna some, be uh, uh, that's July twenty second, Saturday, July twenty second. Yeah. Um, got oh, some new nicknames. One new nickname, uh, Heather. I, is, it, is it okay if I give her this nickname, Hunter? Yeah. Heather Unitarian Church. Very good. Oh, Unitarian. Very. So make sure everybody in your life calls you Unitarian now. Um, let's see what else. Who wrote this next plug? What's this? Uh, I was trying to call back my Jimmy Angel bit, but I don't think it, it oh. got traction. So who cares? Yeah. Hey, you can catch Jimmy Angel and the Cody Bryant band every Thursday at Cody Bryant's Viva Can- Cantina in Burbank from now until one of them dies. <laughs> Jimmy Angel's that super old dude that had like a semi hit in the fifties, but he, he still plays at the Smokehouse. He played baseball for the Yankees organization and also knew Elvis. Yeah, oh. and, and Alan, or one of you was wearing a Detroit hat, and he's like, "Oh, Alan Trammell, a good friend of mine." Uh, not Alan Trammell, I believe it was Al Kalon. Um, Al Kalon. Ah, yeah, yeah. Dave Fax, yeah. Well, an older guy. Um, yeah. Hey, what's this? You have another trip. Dave has another tribute band event on August 18th at the Offbeat, and he'll probably wait until the next episode when he has more information. Yeah, it's going to be Friday the 18th. Hey, wait till the next episode! 8 p.m. Offbeat. Highland Park. Number five. Is that a racer head? I don't know. No, I like the racer head. It's a good show about the anxieties of impending parenthood. Yeah. I can tell you who this is, Hunter. This is Paul Anka with You Are My Destiny. I didn't ask. Well, I'm going to tell you anyway. Uh, at first, I was I was, I was going to make Paul Anka the five-slot note regardless. But at first, I was going to give it to Put Your Head on My Shoulder, because that's an angelic-sounding love song with dreamy backing vocals and very innocent-sounding. But then I asked my mom, like, who else does music like this? And she sent me a list of other artists. And one of them was Neil Sedaka. 
I found a weird European-sounding minor key ballad of his called You Mean Everything to Me. And I was like, wow, this doesn't sound like his usual cheerful bordering on dippy stuff that Neil Sedaka usually does. And then I found out that that song was an extremely direct ripoff of this one, which is not one of Paul Anka's best-known numbers, but it was his second top ten hit uh, back in 1958. So what would David Lynch do? He often goes with the most iconic hits, but not always. And if he's given the choice between a conventional love song, something a little more philosophical sounding is done in a minor key, something that rhymes destiny with reverie, he's probably going to go with the latter. So that's what I did. But either way, I'm going to claim credit if he uses either of these songs in the last nine episodes of Twin Peaks, you fuckers will never hear the end of it. Steve, you should have just named 100 songs right now, and then you would have been right. I probably should have. Uh, this song this song would very clearly fit into a scene about demonic possession or some other horrible, looming inevitability involving Black Lodge entities and or Dennis Hopper. I feel like I've heard a song like this on Twin Peaks or like Lost Highway or some other David Lynch movies. Like, oh, that... that. The triplet pulse piano. Yeah, that triplet. Hey, anybody else picture it? Hey, write us and let us know if you know what scene I'm talking about because I can't figure it out. Wait, do it again. You need it again? Maybe later. This song is a murderous threat. Yeah, now we're getting into it. Once again, heaven is the only thing that can take her away from him. If someone put this on a mixtape for a girl, that girl should call the cops. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she, this, this guy is obsessed with her. Uh, so Paul Anka, we'll talk about him a little bit. He was another one of the more talented teen idols of his era. What set him apart was he could write like a motherfucker. He wrote most of his own hits, including this one. It doesn't, you know, this doesn't sound like a standard, <laughs> typical 50s song because of the key. and the, it, it just sounds like, it just sounds kind of continental European to me. Uh, anyway, he had, he, had, he had a good writing range. Uh, for other artists, he wrote It Doesn't Matter Anymore for Buddy Holly. He wrote the music that eventually became the theme song to Johnny Carson's Tonight Show. Uh, he wrote She's a Lady for Tom Jones, and he wrote the English lyrics to Frank Sinatra's My Way. Wait, wait was that song originally in Spanish? No, it was originally in French. Ah. It was a French song. It was a French song. Ah. Was, the original title was Come d'habitude, which I think, if I remember my high school French... It means I did it my I, way, Steve. You don't even have to think about it because we know what the song translates to. I think it means more like as usual or something like that. I'm, I'm, I'm about to have a band meeting here where we let Steve only have the length of the song to get his facts in. <laughs> I would never have done this uh, episode then because all these songs are two and a half minutes. Yeah. I think uh, fun Paul Anka fact. Anka. Uh, he wrote one. Bless you. He, uh, you're welcome. Um... He gave all the royalties to It Doesn't Matter Anymore to the widow of Buddy Holly. Yes. Which shows true. that he's a class act. He is a class act. And also rich enough not to give a fuck about one song. That is also correct. Also bought my dad a drink once. Oh, fantastic. Nice guy. Did your dad say Anka very much? Uh, yes. Thank you very much. Anka Shane. <laughs> Paul Anka was, fun fact, one of the first Canadians to reach musical stardom in America. Uh, he was the son of Middle Eastern immigrants, specifically Lebanese Christians. 
He married the fashion model daughter of a Lebanese diplomat in 1963 and stayed with her until 2001. Sounds exactly like Casey Kasem's autobiography. I think they were in cahoots. I think they're the same person. Doppelgangers. Yeah. One in the same. Good heads of hair on so, those guys. They, they were doppelgangers, but do you know which one is the evil one from the Black Lodge? Casey Kasem, 110%. Easily. <laughs> Good guys don't voice Scooby-Doo characters. Yeah. <laughs> Hence uh, Matthew Lillard on yep. Twin Peaks. It all yep. comes around. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. It also sounds like he's describing Jamie Farr, too. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> so, is he the... I'm which one's sure the, which his parents one? weren't Christian. Jamie Farr's Dougie Jones. Doug, is, <laughs> Jamie Farr's Dougie he's Jones. He's the one manufactured to trick the Black Lodge, yeah. Fun fact, another fun fact, for a short time in the early 60s, Paul Anka had his own record label called Spanka. That is a real fact. I did not make that up. Sounds like a date fact. He was also one of the first singers to perform regularly in Las Vegas, like before his mid-70s comeback. He had his uh, 70s comeback song, You're Having My Baby, which I'm sure you guys have heard. Yep. But when it came out, it enraged feminists and people that cared about women so much (laughs) that uh, when he performs it live, he now sings You're Having Our Baby to show he's not a misogynistic dick. He's still kicking, too. You can see him live. He's on tour. Mm -hmm. Paul Anka Tour. Mm -hmm. Maybe he'll buy you a drink. He's trying to visit every single city and town in the United Mm -hmm. States. Populations of 2,000 or more. Yep. That's not true at all. Hey! Hello? The girl is still missing. Number four. That one puzzled me for that's from Mulholland Drive. Michael Anderson, the man from a little place in Twin Peaks, played like some mysterious bigwig in Mulholland Drive, and that was that was what oh, that I was. I forgot that. Yeah. Uh, I mentioned Jay and the Americans before, having recorded another one of those songs back there. Here they are in their own right. This is the first of their four quasi-operatic top ten pop hits. This is called She Cried. This is a top five hit in 1962. And because of the way that the Roy R. Orbison song Crying was treated in Mulholland Drive, and this one has crying the title, I can see this being sung in a much slower, much more emotional Spanish version. These songs are dark as fuck. Yeah! It's great! I was digging into a teenage tragedy genre that I still may do, where, like, there was this rash of, like... I found a few like, more songs for you 60s. in the research of this, if you want. Uh, there's one about this guy whose girlfriend gets eaten by a shark. Yes! It's called I Water's heard that red. one! Yes! And then at the end of it's it... amazing! He, he dives into the water with a knife to turn the water red with a shark's blood. It's the happiest fucking song about this red water washing up why, on the beach. Why didn't you save that... It's darker than this. Why didn't you save that for the episode? No, yeah, you can't you just talk about it. it. Yes, no, we can talk Nobody's, nobody's still listening. Okay. That's true, yeah. Uh, the, lead, the lead vocal on this song is by the group's original lead singer, John J. Trainer. Uh, after their next couple singles flopped... What was Jay, that middle initial? His, his nickname was the word J, ah. not, the, not the letter J. All right, here, here's what's frustrating me about this episode right now, Steve. Here's what's, I want to talk about Twin Peaks and David Lynch. I have to listen to a five-minute paragraph about how Jay and the Americans got all their nicknames. <laughs> it's not what I wanted to talk about. It's not what I was sold. I would like to hear about their nicknames. I, okay, gave, you all, I gave you all the chance to write a bunch of shit about Twin Peaks and David Lynch stuff, and only one of you even bothered to take that opportunity. And by the time I was there, there was already a novel in every song. 
Anyway, I wanted to improvise passionate talks about David Lynch and Twin Peaks. There's no room. But Hunter wants sure to hear is. about Jay and the Americans. I would like to hear about nicknames. So continue, and I apologize, but I had to rant. He's like, I know to talk to about Twin Peaks. You can jump in later. Okay, thanks. Yeah, Jack. later. So, Jay and the American had nicknames. Yeah, so we got some Jay, paragraphs to get through, Jay, JD. We got to talk about the music, too. Uh, Jay left for a solo career that went nowhere. He was replaced by a guy named David Blatt after the group convinced him that, number one, it's Jay and the Americans. Your new name has to be Jay. Nobody's going to give a fuck about Dave and the Americans. And number two, your, that, last, your last name sounds like a fart. Could you change that slightly to be Black? So Jay Black sang on their other three big hits, which were Come a Little Bit Closer, Cara Mia, and a cover of The Drifters' This Magic Moment. Every other member of the group also changed their names, but this was to sound less Jewish. Uh, they claimed it was because too many girls were calling their parents' houses and hanging up. Bullshit. Yes. All right, so there's Howard Kane, born Howard Kirschenbaum. He worked as a mortician prior to joining the group. <laughs> uh, Kenny Vance was born Kenny Rosenberg. If you're trying to make that name sound less Jewish, you call yourself Kenny Rose, not yes. Kenny Vance. Yes. Uh, and then there was Sandy Dean or Deanne or something. He was born Sandy Yaguda. Uh, he could have kept Yaguda. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He probably could have. Uh, and then even the band name Jay and the Americans is somewhat altered from the original version. When they auditioned for the uh, the songwriting team of Lieber and Stoller at the legendary Brill Building in New York, uh, they changed the names back. They cite they cite these. Hey, these are a bunch of clean cut, super super white guys. Why don't we name them Binky Jones and the Americans? Because they wanted to make him sound like a rapist clown. <laughs> In hindsight, this all makes it's because like, David Lynch has themes about like duality and and your person like dual personalities and dual existences. Yes, yeah, bring I bring everything and relevant what's under in. the surface. All right. Yeah, uh, I got a couple fun facts about Kenny Vance because he did stuff. Yes. He, uh, at one time, he managed the hotshot young songwriting duo of Donald Fagan and Walter Becker for a few years in their very, very early days. Was that at the hot second where they kind of were attached to the Brill Building? Yes, yes. Uh, they, yeah, they auditioned at the Brill Building. He was their manager. He helped them get their song, I Mean to Shine, recorded by Barbara Streisand. I listen to that song. It's it's cool because it's it sounds like an early Steely Dan song if you listen to, like, all their like outtakes and this early stuff that are out and about legs that you can find. And that's yeah. another Babs connection. To yeah, rock. yeah. It yeah. didn't take off for her though. Uh, another thing, Kenny was also the music. I don't, I don't think you heard the album Wet. Yeah, I was just gonna say <laughs> songs about w things that are wet. <laughs> yeah, it's a good theme. Oh no, okay, okay. This is third time for this. All right, oh, but I did rant a long time, so I'll give you half a song. Sweet. Uh, Kenny Vance was also the music supervisor for the movies Animal House and Eddie and the Cruisers. That's a good music supervisor. Yeah, those are great sure soundtrack movies. Uh, one more fun fact about Jay and the Americans: they were the opening act for the Beatles' first U.S. performance and the Rolling Stones' first U.S. performance. That's how you greet the British invasion: you pick an opening act whose very name serves as a reminder of what fucking country they're in now, eh? And nobody wants to fucking see America. Nope. Horse so, with no name. Fuck you. Let's talk about how this song would sound in a David Lynch movie. I think it would sound sinister as fuck. Like, this is the soundtrack to a ritual dismemberment that would end with uh, somebody stuffing a bag of body parts in the trunk of a vintage Mustang. 
And that should be followed by a cameo from mortician Howard Kane, nay Howard Kirschenbaum, prepping the body for the funeral, I think, in my opinion. Well, I, I could tell you where you wouldn't hear it in one of those sweet scenes between Andy and Lucy where they're real sweet about each other because they're in love. And I love they're, not, they're not fighting at that point. I love how episode 9's uh, uh, redder beige chair scene re- re- resolved, but couldn't they break the tie by consulting their son Wally Brando? They seem to really respect the opinions, and he's very supportive of them turning his childhood bedroom into a study. Love Wally Brando. Have I you seen see- Wally Brando yet, Dave? No, I'm uh, halfway through episode four. Oh my uh, gosh, Wally fucking Brando! It is a delightful scene. <sighs> Hunter doesn't like Wally Brando. He groaned because Hunter hates fun. No, uh, here's my thing about Wally Brando. I hope he comes back. Yes, and I'm starting I, to feel like he will. I, I hope so because if it's that one scene, then yes, I will ultimately end up hating that scene. I'll but, still love it. I will love it till the end of time. You've never seen two parents more proud than Lucy and Andy are. I did a pr- fucker Wally Brando. I did appreciate them standing there staring at going, <laughs> yeah, look, look at this at actor we have in this show. Oh, he's looking at our son yeah. and how wonderful he's turned out. <laughs> yeah, so good. So good. Okay. So, okay. We done? Sure. It's like um, there's, um, these are in groups of threes. Like one, two, three, 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 and then there's a break. Number three. Ah, finally, I got some real deal Phil Spector into the countdown. This is the Teddy Bears. To know him is to love him. This was his first big hit in any capacity. And unlike everything that came after this, Phil Spector was actually a member of this group. This was like his high school doo-wop group that he formed while attending Fairfax High School right here in Los Angeles. A lot of rockers came from there. Yeah. The Chili Papers. Yeah. I thought uh, Flea went to Santa Monica High School, same school as uh, Herb Alpert. Maybe? I mean, you just said that, so I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea. No, because Flea was a trumpet player, and they were looking at him like, oh, hey, we had another trumpet player. Again, that I, I don't think, I don't know about any of this. And that's he why, did play trumpet, I can okay. confirm And that's that. why he opened the Music Conservancy in, in Silver, Lake. Silver Lake. Yeah, because he wants okay. other kids to learn the trumpet. Eat a hot turd, J.D. Okay. <laughs> Uh, Phil Spector was 19 years old. This is like a year after he graduated high school. Uh, he wrote this song himself while still in high school. Uh, a label gave them a little studio time, so he arranged and produced it himself. He played some of the instruments. He did some of the backing vocals. Bim, bam, boom. Uh, this was, the, this was uh, a number one's hit in 1958. It was the Teddy Bear's only hit. Is a dude singing this? Uh, no, I'll get yeah, to the first. Yeah, that's Teddy you... Ted E. Bear. Huh. <laughs> I mean, it could if he was like Cook E. Jar. Did you say how old he was when he did this? He was 19. Yes, but it, this could be a 19-year-old boy. Or 17 or 18. No, no that Phil is... Spector. That's a soaring woman. Soaring, is... soaring female vocals. That is lead singer Annette Kleinbard. Okay. I'll get to her. In I know a you'll get to it. Oh yeah, you'll definitely. But you'll I knew it would be a while, and I had this burning question. I really wanted <laughs> yeah. to know. If it, Let's, it was well, like a seventeen-year-old classmate. We'll talk a little bit about the the production style here first. Oh. Uh, you don't hear the legendary wall of sound uh, just yet. This is more just a regular old romantic fifty song, but it sounds super dreamy. It's got all the sighing and the swooning and all the stuff that you want. If you want a real rock critic descriptor term, Hunter, because I know you like those, you might even say gauzy. Huh. Hmm. You like that one? 
Oh, no. Okay, continue. Fun facts. Fun facts. All right, so the personnel. Uh, there's lead singer Annette Kleinbard. Backup singers hey. Marshall Lieb and Harvey her. Goldstein. And there's drummer Sandy Nelson. Uh, when they, when they, their follow-ups flopped, and uh, Phil Spector disbanded the group to focus on writing, pro- writing and producing. Of course, he became the first star producer in rock music. Nelson continued on as a, st- a session drummer, still performed even after losing part of his leg in a motorcycle accident. Which part? The uh, bottom the top part. part. Oh, weird. <laughs> Annette Kleinbart. She pulled a J in the Americans. Changed her name to the less Jewish Carol Connors. I think the only less Jewish name is Adolf Hitler. <laughs> uh, Carol Connors Kleinbard worked Wasn't as both. Wasn't he born the- Jewish? I don't know. Probably, he was born probably Austrian. Not, Austria. Did they have Jewish people in Austria? Or they used to? <laughs> oh my god. Oh my god. Why did I even make and that? And then Kleinbard, aka Carol Connors. Worked as both a singer and songwriter, most notably co-writing Bill Conti's Gonna Fly Now theme from Rocky. Marshall Lee Behert, uh, he worked behind the scenes in the music business. His Wikipedia had zero specifics about that, but it did mention that he became a Ferrari collector. I assume that whatever the hell he did, he did pretty well for himself. So this song is another, like, James Hurley romantic bad boy type song, I think. Maybe like that drug trip in a convertible bit, like where David used I Love How You Love Me this season. That drug's gonna tear Twin Peaks apart, that Chinese designer drug is tearing, making everybody go crazy. That rash? Oh. Oh, man, it's a bad rash. Uh, JD, I want to go back to your early point about repression, too. Uh... Because Phil Spector made some of the most romantic music in early rock and roll, and he was a controlling monster in his personal life. Like he's grasping for an ideal he can never achieve in reality because he's too fucked up in the head. Uh, he married, of course, he married Ronnie Bennett, lead singer of the Ronettes. He turned paranoid and reclusive and basically held her prisoner in his house with like these security cameras everywhere to make sure she didn't leave. Lost Highway Part 2 The Duality of Phil Spector. It's fucking crazy, man. Bill Pullman's sax should be a nice addition to the wall of sound. Oh, yeah. Agent Cooper can find out who really killed that woman in Alhambra. Yeah, of course, Phil, Phil Spector was convicted of second-degree murder and the shooting death of Lactus Lana Clarkson at his estate in Alhambra. Uh, according to an article by Hadley Mears... When he went to jail, Phil Spector left behind his lizards, his iguanas, his decorative suits of armor, his white piano, and his collection of garden gnomes. Wait, Phil Spector lived in Alhambra? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he had, a man- he had a mansion there. It was locally known as the Pyrenees Castle. Alhambra? Yeah. Yeah. Phil Spector, buy a house in the middle of Hollywood. You're super rich. Alhambra. You get a lot more property out in Alhambra. Alhambra has some nice areas, JD. He can afford the biggest lot in Hollywood. He's Phil fucking Spector. He wrote all the songs. Dumb. Dumb guy. He read this one right. He read it right. Number two. 
what it's exposing the dark underbelly of this show. He said, I hope Dave didn't <laughs> okay, talk under this I bumper. Was, I was giggling audibly, yeah. and I missed it. <laughs> hey, here we have a song about the fucking apocalypse. This is Skeeter Davis, The End of the World. This was uh, done in the heart of the Cold War, not long after the Bay of Pigs incident. But of course, it's, dis- it's disguised as a sad breakup song. It was actually more inspired by the death of co-writer Sylvia D's father. But regardless, David Lynch core ballads don't co- really—they don't really come any darker than this one. It's, a, it's the same sort of composition as James Hurley's "Just You and I Together Forever in Love," with that piano and guitar that sort of picks in that classical musical melody. Yeah, but it's so fucking dark. I mean, like if this. Uh, this this had to be in the running for uh, David Lynch. Like I'll bet if he had a big board of songs, I'll bet this was at least had a pushpin in it at some point. I maybe he's actually waiting for the, to to stage the actual apocalypse in one of his one of his shows. Like maybe maybe this is the point where one of somebody in the Black Lodge is like it's just going to open up and like every entity in it is going to come out and start Laura Palmering the entire population of the world. I don't know. How do you Laura Palmer someone? Uh, it's half lemonade, half Bob. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's half that smelly engine oil. Oh, okay, good. <laughs> oh, boy. Golf clap. We have fun. Uh, Skeeter Davis, the crossover country singer from Dry Ridge, Kentucky, was born Mary Frances Pennick. Skeeter was a childhood nickname given her by her grandfather. She had a lot of energy. She was always buzzing around like a mosquito. Uh, she formed a country duo with her best friend from high school, Betty Jack Davis. They called themselves the Davis Sisters, even though they weren't sisters. And they had a big hit in 1953 with a song called I Forgot More Than You'll Ever Know, which is also a theme of this uh, podcast. But uh, while that was At on least the charts, one of our episodes. While that was on the charts, Betty Jack was killed in a car crash and oh, left Skeeter no. severely injured. So she retired for a few years. She came back as a solo act in 1958. Had a few hits the next few years, and a couple of her singles started making the pop charts too. And that set the stage for this one. Came out in 1962. It's the only song ever to make the top ten on the pop, country, R&B, and adult contemporary slash easy listening charts. The, the, that was all the there charts. There was four Billboard. charts, and there was four charts in 1962. What? And one of them was. Contemporary? Adult contemporary. I think at that point it was still called Easy Listening. There was a huh. fi- there's actually another one, the Ibiza Chill Out chart. It was that was a fifth chart, but it was empty until the 1990s. Yeah, yeah. it still had to invent there. the genre. Just until... sat there unpopulated. Wait, yeah. <laughs> wait, wait they were waiting for this genre to be invented, guys. There, there wait, there were th- songs back then that the listening wasn't easy. That, that they they really, needed their own chart for that? Yeah, mm-hmm. it was songs that didn't sound like every other yeah, song, it was so, so it was songs easier geared to enjoy. For the, songs geared for the parents. I can't believe this made the top of that chart, because it sounds like every other song we've heard. I'm so bored right now. Steve, get through these fun facts. <laughs> number two for... <laughs> they ran the entire gamut of music at yeah. the top. Yeah. So to let you know how, how the variance of all the different Low types stakes. of music. I'm sorry, I'm just, I'm wowed by that. Uh, this was produced by guitar legend Chet Atkins. It was played at his funeral. Uh, it's also got, towards the end, it's got one of those early 60s things nobody does anymore, where the singer speaks the lyrics of the verse for dramatic effect, and it's always more dramatic if it's a verse they've already sung earlier in the song. 
So the opposite of David Getty's Blind Man in the Bleachers, where he talks his way in. Yes. There's a reference everybody can enjoy. Yep. Man, uh, I'm still thinking about that chart thing. Yeah. So, could you charts. imagine? Could you imagine a song today making the top five of the pop, the country, the R&B, and the adult contemporary we better charts? Get, we better get busy. I can see. I can we see. We better write this. What do you think? A Taylor Swift song. Yeah, I was right? going to say yeah. Taylor Swift. Yeah. Yeah. Like Taylor Swift. Produced she by does something kind of dancey, but still a little bit more to her roots. I, I, I gotta look it up. Yeah. This blows my mind. Like, okay, I'm sorry. I'm Ken, sorry. Kendrick, Ken, or, or, uh, uh, Taylor Swift produced by Pharrell or something, and and yeah, and yeah. It, but it's kind of a slow song. Or if somebody got their shit together and did one of those great AIDS songs that got everybody on the same page, and because everybody's in it, every audience would would get it. I guess that's the point of those. I just don't think it's possible. Yeah, Taylor Swift, Pharrell, I know you're listening to Beyond Yacht Rock, so <laughs> we've thrown down the gauntlet. Please do that. Try to try to get on five charts. Okay, sorry. Sorry, sorry I had to go back to that. I love it. I love it. Most interesting thing that was brought up today. <laughs> also, I I was I was picturing when the teddy bears were singing, and I thought maybe that was a boy singing, and that maybe the teddy bears didn't go far enough because his voice finally changed. Oh, That's what was God. in my head. Like it was take te- hormones, it, like Michael Jackson. It was a teenage. It was a teenage band, and then all of a sudden he was singing that song. Oh, oh, oh. Yeah. Oh, we're done. Yeah, Phil Spector shot him. Okay, well that's where I was going with that, but I never really got to him. All right, continue. This this song was it has been featured on se- like a few soundtracks, several movies and TV shows. None of them sounded particularly David Lynchy, so fuck them. JD, what do you think David Lynch would oh, do with this song? I, I think he'd use it for comedy. I, like, Lucy- okay, so this is not like the this is not the literal end of the world for you. No, like Lucy drops a cup of coffee and then the camera spends two minutes slowly zooming into the mess until we get into the molecular makeup of the coffee, which sounds like static and looks like bugs eating each other. And then right in the middle of that, we see the face of Wally Brando. Ah, his dharma. Number one. Great job, Linger Flying Studio, Joe. Earn that nickname. Earn it. Hey, I found a shimmery 50s ballad that's literally about dreams, so it had to be number one. It's It may as well be cocaine. It's so on the nose, guys. <laughs> uh, cocaine goes in the nose, Steve. Now I understand why your nose is white and the show is going so long and slowly. I think we either. You think if we got him on cocaine, he'd talk faster? He actually may write more. Oh, you're right. You're right. <laughs> My neurons would just start firing uncontrollably. I'd have to get it all down on the page. Uh, this is the Everly Brothers, of course, with All I Have to Do is Dream. Uh, they brought the harmonizing sibling country act into hip contemporary territory. Exceedingly hip. Uh, generally speaking, Phil Everly sings high, Don sings low. They grew up mostly in Shenandoah, Iowa, which you'll certainly remember from our 50 States segment about Iowa. 
Uh, a lot of the ever here's here's this is a story. I'm going to tie it in a little bit with the Lynch aesthetic. Uh, a lot of their popular material was written by the husband and wife team of Felice and Boudlow Bryant. This song is Boudlow fi- Flying Solo, and their relationship was apparently kickstarted by a dream that Felice had when she was eight years old, in which she was dancing to our song with a handsome man. When Felice was 19, she was working as an elevator operator, you can't do that anymore, at a hotel in Milwaukee where Boudlow's band was playing. She recognized his face from her childhood dream, just like Coco with Christopher Cross and Sailing, and she insisted on marrying this guy. They eloped two days later. So this song is Boudlow's biographically accurate tribute to their weird Lynchian romance. Bullshit! That's a bullshit story, Felice. You're a terrible liar. It's a, such a fake story. Furthermore, you can still work as an elevator operator. Really? I sometimes have to hire them for loading equipment into buildings. Granted, it's usually considered a security position, but their job is to specifically, specifically operate the elevator. I also I wouldn't be surprised if fancy buildings in like the you know like the Upper West Side of New York City or something still have elevator operators. Just as like I, I I think it's just doormen, and you know what? They may operate the elevator from behind their little counter. So the elevator doesn't oh, yeah, have buttons yeah, yeah. inside, so they're still operating an elevator. But it's kind of a hybrid position now. Yeah. Multitask. They wear a lot of hats, not just that little round one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, the Bryants are another couple that changed their names from what they used to be. Felice's birth name was Matilda Genevieve Scaduto. And in the manner of my grandfather, Zenith Berwin Huey, Boudlow went by his middle name because his real first name was even weirder. His was Diodorius. Wait, what, what did Boudlow go by? Boudlow? Yeah, his name Boudlow's- was Diodorius Boudlow Bryant. Oh, man. My, gran- my grandpa Berwin was Zenith Berwin Huey. I think Zenith is less weird than Berwin. Really? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. It was a brand of popular TVs. Yeah, yeah he owned one. There you go. And radio. Very on the nose. Electronics company. <laughs> is that the grandpa that slowly walked out of the room when you were watching? Was yes. That, grandpa that, story? Is, that is one and the same. Were you that watching? Is Berwin. What was the, the share video share. for if There's I could turn button. back time? Was it on his Zenith? No, it was on the crappy little TV upstairs. Oh, okay. Yeah, the, yeah, it was on the Philco. The Zenith was downstairs for everybody. Uh, so this this song here, this was the Everly Brothers' biggest hit. Is this was the only song ever to top all of Billboard singles charts simultaneously? But that was easier in 1958 when there were only three pop, country, and R and B. Uh, and this is also another Chet Atkins. We got a Chet Atkins sighting. That's him playing the guitar. He's fucking around with an early tremolo effect through his amp. Good work, Chet. Yeah. Good job, Chet. Uh, we're wrapping up the show now. It's good to wrap up the show with a song that's just about dreams. It's neither good nor bad. Anything can happen to a song with a song like this on the uh, on the, on the on the screen. It can be weird, good, and sweet. It can be weird, dark, and bad, much like the human subconscious itself. David Lynch likes to stay in tune with his subconscious via transcendental meditation. Apparently, he sometimes teaches classes at at his house. Perhaps we, too, can become as weird as David Lynch if we find our vehicle and practice diligently. In conclusion, this song should also be lip-synced by Dean Stockwell dressed in drag, but he should be in character as Al from Quantum Leap. 
And speaking of dreams, I just want to conclude by saying that it's important to remember that when you're watching the works of David Lynch, you are, in effect, watching a dream. Don't apply too much real-life logic to it. You wouldn't do that to your own dreams. So, like, oh, I had a dream that I was falling from a plane and then a mermaid suddenly pulled me underwater and I could breathe by sucking her titties and then she gave me a handy and then I was at my friend's house in my old neighborhood, but it was different and I got to have sex with a beautiful woman there. What a terrible dream because it made no sense. It was kind of hot, though. It's a great dream. It's a great dream. It's great as a dream. Yeah, you wouldn't say that about... You wouldn't say... Oh, my dream made terrible. No yeah. yeah, you wouldn't say that. My dream lacks logical narrative structure. Yeah. So don't say that stuff about Lynch, especially about New Twin Peaks, especially episode eight. So fun. I thought that was a great episode. This is the water and this is the well. Drink full and descend. The horse is the white of the eyes and the darkness within. I can't get that out of my head. Yeah, I, was, I, was, I can't wait to get it in my head. I'm excited. Several to see of it. our listeners just fell asleep on the spot. I, I should just repeat that at the uh, end of the episode. <laughs> I think they heard JD's voice and woke up. <laughs> exactly. It's a one time that poem woke people up. Anyway, okay. Uh, anything else? What didn't make the list? Um, hey, you know, I could. Be, I know it was your restriction, but it would have been nice to hear something more modern. I feel uh, like that opened up too big a can of worms. But yeah, they, David Lynch does use modern music, and there is a sort of a more modern Lynch sound. But I mean, there's there's modern like no, there's modern he, people who use this sound. Like there's, yeah, there's the, an Everly Brothers-esque band on the New Twin Peaks called the Cactus Blossoms. And that's already used, I know it doesn't count, but I'm sure like Delilah Lovett or Chris Isaac might have something shimmery or dreamy that could have Chris Isaac, happen. definitely. I mean, yeah. if you're going to talk about modern Lynch car, Chris Isaac is pretty much the prototype. Okay, that. I will. Yeah, I was going to mention Chris Chet Desmond Isaac's song, Unhappiness. Uh, that seriously was made for a David Lynch project. It has, it has, comes complete with a uh, little black, backward sounding strings in it. Um, that's I think it's off his first album it's from like 1985. Yeah, it's off Silvertone. Way. Are you playing it? No, the, you're playing your is, this song. This is the Cactus Blossoms with Mississippi. This was on the show. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah, this is super Everly. Put put in unhappiness in a second. I'm seriously. It you'll go. Oh, this is a fucking David Lynch song. He did it in 1985. It's crazy. Who, who was it again? Chris Isaac. Um, or uh. Or maybe Katie Lang's version of his song, Western Stars, which is on the same album. Um, anyways, that's what I was in. So, this is Hunter's? This is Hunter's, but it's not playing. No. Um, well, I would have gone... Like I talked about Magic Moments by Perry, Perry Como, just because it's like the whitest fucking song. It is, it is ungodly innocent and, and it's white. so like, it talks about hayrides, but then uh, I realized that Some Velvet Morning by Nancy Sinatra and Lee Hazelwood is ideal for a David Lynch movie because it's already got the juxtaposition of this good versus evil and doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I, I, I strongly consider that when I talk to you about yeah. it. And I ended up deciding that Some Velvet Morning is kind of already a miniature David Lynch yeah. movie all by itself. And if you've been to my house, you've been forced to listen to it. Usually at about awesome. one in the morning. I, I don't know why this isn't hasn't been in a David Lynch movie yet. Yeah, this is good. Um, all right. Find this week's David Lynch Corp playlist by following J.D. Risner on Spotify or uh, buying an I Love the Oldies compilation CD, 1950s. Uh, go to YachtRock.com to buy t-shirts. Check out the Yasky Scale spreadsheet. 
Uh, or you can go go to yachtandyacht.com. What did you say that is? Um, you can send questions via Twitter at Yacht Rock. Follow JD at JD Riznar. Follow Hollywood Steve at Hollywood Steve H. Follow Dave at David underscore B underscore Lions. Follow Hunter at Hunter Stare. Like Yacht Rock on Facebook. Follow Beyond Yacht Rock on Instagram. Uh, rate and review us on uh, Apple Podcasts. Your reviews help us pick up heat. So please take time today to write us a review. Thanks to Joe Wisecaver at Backpedal Music for sending the bumpers. Themes by Rob Crow and Mark Rivers. Produced. Produced. By Matt Brusso. Produced by Brusso. And thanks to the entire Feral Audio family. Check out other Feral Audio podcasts at feralaudio.com.